Hello! Welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello, hello. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires. Of, you are a New York Times columnist, among many other things. Hello. <laughs> Elizabeth has been reading the massive complaint that Elon Musk brought against OpenAI on Friday. So we are going to talk about that. We are going to talk about Wendy's and its dynamic pricing and the way that dynamic pricing in general is taking over the world. We are going to talk about the Apple car, RIP, and how Apple grows if it doesn't do cars, or maybe it does do cars. We'll talk about that. We have a Slate Plus segment all about Macy's, which is doing quite badly these days. It's all coming up in Slate Money. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, I woke up this morning, Emily Peck, and I thought to myself, self, what would you do if you thought that the fate of humanity was at stake? What would you do if you thought that there was an existential risk to the human race? And you know what I said to myself? I said to myself, what I would do is I would file a lawsuit in California court alleging promissory estoppel. Obviously. And that's going to fix it, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, we know that litigation fixes everything in the United States, that it moves quickly and decisively <laughs> and, yeah, really does help the fate of humanity. That's clear. So, Elizabeth, what the hell am I talking about? So, Elon Musk is now suing Sam Altman for breach of contract and also unfair business practices because he alleges that Altman has breached his promises to make OpenAI something that exists primarily for the good of humanity and to safeguard any, anything that they need to put in place to prevent the AIs from taking over and destroying everything. Basically, this is this is this wonderful term, promissory estoppel, and this is why everyone needs to be a lawyer because you get to throw around terms like promissory estoppel and champity, is that under the governing documentation of OpenAI, which is a non-profit, the board of OpenAI has an obligation to prevent an artificial general intelligence from just being like given to Microsoft without being instead sort of used for the greater good of humanity and being open source and all the rest of it. And what Elon is alleging in this suit is that 
around the time that the OpenAI board fired Sam Altman, and we covered this at the time, the reason they did that was because they were like, oh, shit, this chat GPT-4 counts as AGI. So Microsoft isn't allowed this because Microsoft isn't allowed anything that's AGI. And also there's this weird thing that no one's really worked out what it is called QSTAR, which, which may or may not be AGI, and that seems to be available to Microsoft as well. And it's all being done on a for-profit basis for the employees and investors in OpenAI and specifically for Microsoft, which eventually managed to get rid of the board that fired Sam Altman and create a new board that includes itself in an observer seat. Elizabeth, is this, do you, do you buy all of this? Is the, do you, like put, Putting aside the merits of the lawsuit, do you think the narrative in the lawsuit is broadly correct? I think the lawsuit has has merits specifically because the narrative is correct. But I do think that this is the case where you have a sort of serendipitous intersection of something that's actually good for humanity, but also Elon Musk's self-interest. So wait, what is good for humanity here? Explain that. Bit. Well, I do think it's, if you know, I agree with Elon that OpenAI has basically created a system that they promised would be transparent. They promised that GPT-4 was going to be open source. It's not. It's a closed system. Nobody knows what QSTAR is at all. Uh, and it's unclear whether either of these things constitute AGI, but what the way that the company is structured now, the mere act of putting it into a closed system violates what the original agreement suggested. And the original agreement, to be clear, was the original conception of OpenAI, which was primarily funded by Elon Musk. And this is why he in particular seems to have maybe more standing than most people would to sue a nonprofit. Like in my mind, if you're suing a nonprofit for not doing what the nonprofit governing documentation says, then really the only person to have standing to do that is the state attorney general. But, I, I, but it's interesting. I think you know Elon's lawyers seem to be pretty good and pretty smart and seem to have found a few ways in which they can at least make a sort of colorable case that he has standing to sue here and that there were specific promises made to Elon and that those promises were broken and that they need to be remedied and so on and so forth. So it's going to be an interesting case. I think we'll hear much more from, you know, the Microsoft and OpenAI and Sam Altman camp in, in the coming days and weeks about like whether there's actually a case here. But Emily, what, what what do you make of the whole like tactic here? Well, TBD on the tactic, reading the the filing, Elon Musk really paints a good, he tells a good story here that's very clear. And it's one of these situations where the worst person you know makes a strong argument, he finally makes a point. Because, I mean, what he's saying is he saw Google building DeepMind, its own AI initiative. He got afraid of it, whether he says because of the implications for humanity. He went to Larry Page. He was like, this seems really bad for humanity. And according to the suit, Larry Page said something like, well, I'm not what I'm not biased towards humans. Like this is just evolution. Like you're, be, no, you're being speciesist. Yes, you're being speciesist. And Elon Musk was like, well, I'm a humanist. And you're kind of like, I'm like nodding along like, yeah, Elon, that like good for you, you know? Yes, I am speciesist at the end of the day. I, I'm with Larry Page on this one. I, for one, welcome our new robot over overlords. 
putting that aside, we'll just ignore that Felix said that. And then, you know, and then so he goes to Sam Altman, he finds common ground with Sam Altman, and they like cook up this idea for an AI company that's open source. The whole idea, it's baked in the name, open AI, there'll be an open source company shares their technology with everybody else. And like, that's how it goes. They, they make up uh, some charter, they make, they write some documents, la la la. Everything's going great till they get to GPT-4 in 2023. And then all of a sudden, all this open stuff goes, I mean, and I'm leaving out a lot of things. All of the open stuff goes out the window. They release this technology that really was like kind of earth shattering. Like we talked about last week, what happened, what's happened to the market, the stock market and to the stock price of NVIDIA since ChatGPT came out. I mean, it's really been like very disruptive. People like to say disruptive, but this actually was disruptive. Okay, so that's where I'm going to push back is that I don't think GPT-4 was particularly disruptive. I think GPT-3 was disruptive. I think that, in fact, it was the very open AI obligation to make GPT-3 open source, which they did, that caused everyone and their mother to start building their own little AI bots, everyone to be able to use this technology that was developed by open AI. Open AI had made it open and it spread virally across industries. Everyone wanted to buy NVIDIA chips and create their own LLMs and, you know, all the rest of it because... OpenAI had made it open. And GPT-3 was the thing that caused the AI revolution, not GPT-4. What this suit is saying is that there's a big difference between GPT-3 and GPT-4. And GPT-3 GPT was all well and good and open, and he has no problem with it. And GPT-4 is, is the thing which is dangerous and AGI and, and like these people need to be stopped. I have used both GPT-3 and GPT-4, and I don't see a lot of difference between them. I, I, I feel like that is an incremental change, and I feel that is probably the weakest part of this lawsuit. And weirdly speaking, I feel like the act of making it open is exactly the thing that made AI particularly dangerous. A large part of this lawsuit is basically complaining about DeepMind, which is Google. And, and saying, like, Google was had all of this incredibly powerful technology and it was keeping it for itself for its own for-profit purposes. And you can't have one company controlling a technology that is this powerful and this existentially risky. And in principle, I agree with that. But it is basically impossible until, you know, the weird, like, in, until the past couple of weeks when Google released a disastrous AI of its own. It's basically impossible to see any harm that Google has done or any real disruption that Google has done in the AI space compared to OpenAI, which releases ChatGPT3 and changes well, the world. Well, you also have to consider two things, though. One is that DeepMind was originally, the original technology was developed by IBM and they sold it to Google. Elon tried to buy it before it sold to Google and was very annoyed that you know it, it didn't work out. So Google owns it now. The other thing is just that when you have an open source system, people actually have access to it. People who research these things are able to evaluate it in public. And in a closed system, they can't do that. So we, we sort of just have to take OpenAI and Microsoft's word for it that this iteration of AI is you know safe and that all the precautions are being taken that should be taken. And there's also, I guess, an argument that Closing off ChatGPT for and whatever this other technology is with the star is kind of 
bad. I mean, he doesn't really say this, but you can kind of like infer it from the suit. It's kind of bad for the development of the technology also. Like it's better to have an open source software like like ChatGPT3 or whatever OpenAI was before where p- other scientists and researchers could come in and see what's going on and innovate off of that, et cetera, et cetera. If you close off the system, that seems to be kind of would maybe slow down development of technology long term. It, it absolutely could. And the the other like wrinkle here, of course, is that s- since Elon became disillusioned with OpenAI, he has since started his own AI company called XAI, which has a product called Grok. And you know he is now a direct competitor of OpenAI and of Google. So like you know, you, you, this can be viewed just in terms of like one AI mogul suing another AI mogul for being anti-competitive. And using humanity as the cover. <laughs> that's that's what I mean by this being in Elon's self-interest as well. You know, if if OpenAI is in a closed system and even Elon can't evaluate it, and XAI is so far behind Google and OpenAI, he he does have an incentive to force them to open up the code. And and so that if nothing else, he understands where they are and what he's competing with. I need, I need to just read out here the the name of the suit because this will give you an idea of how fucking crazy and convoluted this whole like edifice has become. It's Elon Musk, an individual, is the plaintiff versus Sam Altman and Greg Brockman, and then he lists all of the companies he's suing, which is OpenAI Inc., OpenAI LP, OpenAI LLC, OpenAI GP LLC. OpenAI Opco LLC, OpenAI Global LLC, OAI Corporation LLC, and OpenAI Holdings LLC. And you're like, does that sound like a nonprofit to you? No, it does not. And that whole crazy edifice of for-profit companies that all all kind of on some level controlled by OpenAI Inc., which is the nonprofit, it's objectively batshit and there's this wonderful part of the complaint where elon basically says you know you can't use a non-profit to do all of your expensive initial r&d and then suddenly turn it into a for-profit because that means that you know everyone's just going to write off their r&d expenses and fund it with charitable contributions and pay 50 cents on the dollar and all the rest of it which is a perfectly good point but that is not what he's complaining about. He kept on donating to OpenAI after it did this dumb switch to for-profit. All of this happened in 2019. Elon gave another $3.5 million after that. He was still in support of OpenAI, and it's really only circa the boardroom coup that Elon like says there was actual nefarious shenanigans, which, is, which he can sue about. Also, isn't that model pretty much what happens in research universities now. The R&D is funded by nonprofit dollars and government funds. And then a lot of research universities are turning the IP into for-profit companies. So how, how would you yeah, argue I mean, that, that's been going how on? How is forever. that different? I mean, I mean, yeah, Google, Google being exhibit A, right. Which, which came out of Stanford and actually Stanford being, being exhibit A. Like most, when people talk about research universities in this context, mostly what they mean is Stanford, like Stanford accounts for the, the lion's share of this kind of like, look at all of these for-profit companies that have grown out of Stanford. But yeah, it's, it's a completely legitimate complaint. But usually 
the the research, there's like a licensing agreement and an IP transfer, but the nonprofit and the for-profit don't continue like married, you know? Like Gatorade came out of University of Florida, but, you know, they don't have anything to do with Gatorade anymore. I mean, and, you know, once the for-profit entity is up and running, the not-for-profit kind of melts back into the background. It's the university stays the university. The not-for-profit remains like it might have some kind of licensing fee thing, but it doesn't have a key role in the corporate governance. Right, right. There's like a divorce at some point. And these, in an open AI's case, they're still, they're still married and the for-profit sort of has taken over the nonprofit. Maybe it just needs to admit it. It is very strange though to read the complaint and see Elon Musk complaining that something is being done solely for profit motives in this kind of language that makes it sound like he he's just genuinely concerned from the bottom of his heart about the fate of other human beings, which is behavior that he does not really exhibit in any other context. Well, I see. I would I, I would say that this is consistent with Elon Musk's view of himself, that basically his entire career of building for-profit companies is is basically the means to the end of saving humanity, right? He's like, the only way that we can prevent humanity from destroying itself is to colonize Mars. And so I need to build rockets and I need to make a whole bunch of money and I need to do everything I can to get us to Mars. Otherwise, humanity will end. And he does have this messianic kind of view of his role on this planet as being the guy to save the species. And he does it in various ways. And he has convinced himself, rightly or wrongly, that like he needs to make a lot of money along the way. And he needs to get Tesla to pay him $50 billion so that he can use that money to colonize Mars. But yeah, this he isn't sort of greedy in the way that, you know, like a 1920s robber baron might be. He has he does have this sort of i wouldn't call it philanthropic but i would say that he does he is he is mission driven on some level it's just that the mission is objectively insane like we are not going to colonize mars and, it's, and even if we do it's not going to help us but like that is his mission he does genuinely believe in that and i th- and i'm pretty sure he does genuinely believe that ai is an existential risk to humanity what is his aim with the suit what does he want to achieve he does seem to want basically his money back. That seems to be a large part of the complaint. He's like, I put, you know, $75 million or whatever it was into OpenAI just as a charitable donation. And now you're using that money to make all of these people incredibly rich and to create billions of dollars of value for Microsoft. And what the fuck? Like, that was not what I was trying to do when I made that donation in the first place. And I want, you know, I want some of that value. If you're gonna, if you're gonna turn that money into a for-profit machine, I want some of those profits. Maybe they'll just wind up settling and I don't know, he could have a seat on the board or something. Next to Larry Summers, they can hold hands. Yeah. (laughs) The thinking machine. Can machines really think? Even the scientists argue that. Until I see a machine producing genuinely new things, I will not agree that machines think. Before we take a break, I want to tell you about our Slate Plus segment today. We're going to be talking about Macy's. The department store just said it's closing a bunch more of its stores. We had a really good conversation about why that's happening and our memories of Macy's. So if you have Slate Plus, you'll get to hear that after the credits. And if you don't have Slate Plus, you might want to sign up because you get ad-free listening on all Slate podcasts plus unlimited access to all the content on Slate.com 
and members-only newsletter. And of course, you get to hear the Slate Plus segment. And, you know, it really helps support Slate and its independent journalism. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery which is a podcast company and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet. And it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisitions like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Emily. Felix. So what are you talking about? Wendy's. I called it, I have written down, Berg Surge, Burger Gate, Surge Gate. Biggie prices. There was an earnings call earlier this month with, and in which the CEO, Kirk Tanner, said that the company was going to be experimenting, testing dynamic pricing, which sounds kind of boring. And it's just the practice of raising and lowering prices based on demand, time of year, all this, and doing it really quick and fast using algorithms and AI and all that stuff. No one noticed when he said this. Then a week later, the media noticed, but instead of saying Wendy's is going to test out dynamic pricing, they said Wendy's is going to test out surge pricing. And the shitstorm began because everyone was like, well, that's crazy because we all know surge pricing from Uber. You know, when it's rush hour, Uber charges more, or when there's a terrorist attack or something horrible and Uber charges more, but then everyone figures out that they're charging more and then they flip out about it, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea that you would go to Wendy's during dinner time and be faced with higher prices than normal caused everyone to kind of uh, flip out. And then it took Wendy's like two days to respond and make some statement like, no, no, we're not doing surge pricing. We're just experimenting with like lowering prices sometimes, you know, and doing discounts, which is the same thing as, as, as charging higher prices during busy times. If you charge lower prices during non busy times, then obviously you're charging higher prices during busy times, but people, no one thinks about it like that. So yeah, so that's kind of where we are with Wendy's. My, my, my theory is that this is Wendy's taking a leaf out of the university playbook that, you know, this is this is what all colleges do. They say, you know, you go, how much is tuition? And they're like, it's $85,000. And, and then you're like, oh, my God, that's really crazy expensive. And then the college <laughs> goes, but wait, you qualify for this discount and that discount, and you're very clever, and we really want you. So here's a scholarship. And, like, in fact, it'll only cost you $35,000. And at that point, you're like, wow, that's a bargain. I'll totally take that. Yeah. 
if they if they had just called it dynamic discounts, people would be super excited. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. But then uh, it turns out if you start looking into this stuff, dynamic pricing is is everywhere across many industries, including restaurants. Apparently, the New York Post reported that Tony Roma's a place for ribs they do dynamic pricing. Other outlets. Have you ever heard of a blue plate special? I mean, dynamic pricing has been around for decades. But this is more like, I think it's happening on the level of like your your Grubhub app are the apps when they see a surge in demand. Now they can like tweak prices up. They can add surcharges or, and that happens in real time. The food delivery app pricing is so completely opaque. No one has a clue. And, and, the, and the menu prices on those apps just you know, they may may or may not be related to the actual physical menu prices in the restaurants. Well, the physical restaurant may or may not actually exist. You know, all of this stuff has become a very anything that p- exists primarily online is going to have dynamic pricing. That's just like a rule. And when you say that people get really upset about Uber surge pricing, I feel like that was the case like five years ago. Now, like we just understand that cars cost different amounts of money at different types of day. And we've all just resigned ourselves to it. I don't think anyone really complains about like surge pricing anymore, except for, except for when they want to go to the airport. Yeah. I don't think they, they complain about it as much because it's so now, you know, it's become a norm, but I do think that, you know, if we suggest that dynamic pricing is inherently not a good thing or not a bad thing, it's, it's just a neutral concept. I think most people's experience with it, the ones that they really go to are are situations where they feel like it's costing them more and, and they they have a certain level of desperation. So, you know, air travel, for example, during the holidays, always more expensive. But, you know, if you have to go see family during Christmas or whatever, like you, you pay those prices. And it doesn't mean that you like it, though, or that you don't have a bad taste in your mouth for having to do that. And so I think it's easier for consumers to think about dynamic pricing and and then automatically kind of think of the bad experiences. The classic example is concert tickets, right? That everyone wants to live in a world, including many of the artists, want to live in a world where they announce that they're having a concert and then the co- the concert tickets have a certain face value and then people buy those concert tickets at that face value and if you can't get in there in time to buy the ticket then oh well, you know, you miss out, but everyone who does buy a ticket, pays the face value, and then watches the show. And that world just does not exist. And inevitably, you know, when a concert is sold out and more people want to go to it, then there are seats and tickets available. Secondary markets pop up, and the tickets wind up being sold for much more than face value, and then everyone gets crossed. I think the difference here with Wendy's and burgers versus plane tickets, concert tickets, and Uber's plane tickets, concert tickets, there's limited supply. And people understand when there's limited supply, you have to do something to adjust for demand, right? Um, Like you have to raise prices. But when you think of like fast food and a burger at Wendy's, there's no, there should be unlimited. I mean, the burgers are endless at Wendy's. You should be able to go there and get one at any time. The whole point of fast food is consistent, the same every time you go. So the idea that they would be doing the same kind of thing that like an airline is doing or, you know, a Taylor Swift concert is just, it's just seen as very unfair and no one likes to be perceived as unfair. I think that's a really good point, 
But I will also say I, I'm writing, I may or may not be writing, I'm looking at a very interesting paper about like ha- how people value their time. And one of the things that happens if you have like a drive-through Wendy's is that at busy times of day, you wind up sitting in a long line of cars waiting to order your burger. And if you wind up sitting in that long line of cars for 20 minutes and you value your time at, say, $50 an hour, then that's, you know, 15 bucks or something that you're paying extra for that burger. And so if Wendy's increases the price of the burger by like a dollar fifty, but you don't have to wait 20 minutes anymore, then in a weird way, that burger has become cheaper for you. Yeah. I mean, and you, you kind of, but there are like more artful ways of doing it than, you know, Wendy's just raising the price of the burger, like out of nowhere in a surprising way. Like you could do like skip the line, pay extra, skip the line kind of a thing. Like they do at Disney now or at the airport right now, you can pay to skip the line essentially. Instead of doing surge pricing or dynamic pricing, you could do what a lot of places are doing now is just like adding extra fees here and there, which is essentially backdoor surge pricing. And people, again, because they see a sticker price, once they get to the checkout and there's like a a fee or they've voluntarily paid the fee, they don't think of the sticker price as having changed. Yeah, because one of the things about dynamic pricing is that the people who value certain things, um, like their own time, pay it, you know, will will pay fees that people who don't value their own time so highly will not. So like a a prime example would be like TSA Precheck. Right. That right. This is yes. this is something that you can pay whatever it is, like ninety nine dollars for, and then you spend less time standing in line to get your bags checked. And you know, there's a certain population of people who are like, that is a complete bargain, and I will pay that every day of the week. And then there's other people. If you you know, if you go to the airport and you see the length length of the line of people who don't have pre-check, they're like, yeah, no, I mean, like, I'm getting to the airport anyway. I may as well be standing in line rather than sitting at a bar. So I don't value, you know, I don't see the the value there. I'm not going to pay it. And if you have the choice of whether or not to pay it, then that feels more acceptable compared to a dynamic pricing situation where everyone just has to pay more. It was so clumsily handled on Wendy's part. It's kind of unbelievable. Like after the initial reporting about surge pricing came out, you know, reporters called them and Wendy's wasn't saying right away, like, no, 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 it's not surge pricing. They weren't, they weren't really, they haven't really explained what they're going to do in, in great detail or in a reassuring way. It just, you can't just like implement AI. You can't just run with Sam Altman's new hot technology because it's fun and cool. And like investors will like it. Like you have to have a plan to make sure that everyone's sort of on board to buy your product. Like when we're moving out of the realm of Musk and humanity and, you know, the fate of mankind into the real world of like, how much does your burger cost when you go to the store or go to the fast food joint? Like you need to have a message that makes some kind of sense that people will buy into. Otherwise all these billions spent on these companies really maybe don't. Don't you think some of this though is just, uh, you know, checking a box for shareholders because their dynamic pricing via screens has existed for a long time and nobody ever calls it AI because for the most part, you're not using sophisticated AI to do that. You're using pretty basic software. But if you're doing an earnings meeting and you call it AI, does that get people excited? Well, I think, I think the answer there is that there really is something there, especially if you have like a franchise model that Wendy's has. 
you know, if you have an urban Wendy's versus a drive through, if you have, you know, if you're next, depending on like what kind of neighborhood you're in, when people come in, when people leave, like trying to predict the flows, trying to understand the price elasticity of any given Wendy's demographic. There's a huge number of variables there that need to be sort of computed if you are going to move to a dynamic pricing system. And I do think in principle, the AI technology can make it a lot easier to get that right than some kind of relatively dumb algorithm where which they just roll out to thousands of different franchises without really understanding the differences between them. Yeah, you could see it really working well. I mean, if you ha- so they're going to install digital menus and then use AI to understand what people want to eat or order at different times of day, depending on location, you could really see like in different stores would have different menu boards that would sort of highlight and and showcase the things that are going to that people are going to want to buy and you can like upsell them things and combos and packages and stuff and you could probably really like do some good work for your profits there you know what i mean rather than one static menu that like has your breakfast items listed and maybe like just everything listed instead you can have something like more focused and curated you know like a newspaper <laughs> you the way it ought to be down to Wendy's old-fashioned hamburgers where quality is our recipe. Emily, catch me up on the Apple car. The Apple car, right. This is something Apple has been working on for a decade, secretly. Without ever admitting it. Without admitting it, but there's been some good reporting um, that has given us some clues and details over the years. TLDR, they're scrapping the whole thing. They spent billions of dollars on this. They were going to make a car. First, it was going to be electric. Then it was going to be driverless. Then they went back to just electric. And now they spent a lot of money. They hired people from all from all different car companies, but now they've just they're just walking away from it. I have a couple of theories of the case here. The first is that the whole concept of an Apple car was always weird and it only really made sense in the context of Apple is a multi-trillion dollar company and if you want to grow a multi-trillion dollar company by entering by, by creating a new product that product needs to be a potentially trillion dollar product and there aren't very many potentially trillion dollar products out there and you know a revolutionary car could conceivably be one of those products and as a whole bunch of electric cars have come along and you've got the rivians and you've got the teslas and you've got the Cadillacs, you know, they're all, everyone and their mother has electric cars now, not to mention BYDs from China. It's becoming more and more obvious that whatever it is that Apple could do would, would find it hard to have the kind of dominant market share that it has in, say, phones. So maybe it's not worth it. But then the other thing that Apple did quietly was, and was that it kind of disrupted itself is that it turned every car into an Apple car while no one was looking. It developed this thing called Apple CarPlay, which is one of the most popular pieces of software in the world. And to a first approximation, every single person who owns an iPhone and a car uses Apple CarPlay. And people love it. And they love it way more than any, you know, native infotainment system. And the next generation of Apple CarPlay, which is being adopted by like Porsche and various other things, you know, does a lot more than the current 
iteration. It, you know, it controls the radio, it looks at the pressure in the car tires, all of that kind of stuff. And it turns out that a piece of software on your phone can create an experience of driving a car and can upgrade your experience of driving a car almost as much as like building a whole bespoke car can. Yeah, I think there are, there's another big factor here is that Apple was never able to find a manufacturing partner. And when you look at other tech companies that are similar that are trying to build cars, like Sony uh, in China, Baidu and Xiaomi are both trying to build cars. They They are partnering with large automakers who really have the sort of hardware aspects of manufacturing that are related to cars, but just have no real relation to what it takes to build a phone or a laptop. So Apple almost had a deal with Hyundai in 2021 to be manufacturing partner for this car, and then it just fell apart. And there's a quote somewhere from the Sony CEO where he says, you know, I didn't realize how hard it was going to be to get into auto until I went to this plant in Ohio that just does welding and tooling and painting. And we sort of realized that this is totally out of our area of expertise. And Apple really never had that component. This is a really smart take. I like it because so much of the success of Apple is Foxconn. You know, if if Apple didn't have Foxconn, they wouldn't be where they are today. And you need they need a Foxconn for the car. And there is no such thing. They're like Foxconn doesn't make cars and there's no company that, you know, is the Foxconn of cars. And I mean, can we also dig into the question of Apple needing growth? Because I don't think it needs growth exactly. I think it just needs something else because it's utterly dependent on the iPhone. I mean, it has other successful products and software and and all this, but without the iPhone, there is no multi-trillion dollar Apple. So it's not growth. It's almost existential that it invents a new product or maybe not. Maybe the iPhone is forever. I don't know. So, so yeah, this is, this was, if you remember back when Steve Jobs died and he was replaced by Tim Cook, the first thing everyone said was like, is Tim Cook, who's this very boring gray ops guy, is he capable of inventing the iPhone? And if he's not, in, if he's not capable of inventing the iPhone, then does that mean that Apple is going to just stop innovating and is doomed? And what happened is that Tim Cook wound up creating like an order of magnitude more value for Apple than Steve Jobs did, right? It turns out that without create without doing anything revolutionary like invent a new iPhone, Tim Cook managed to create this financial behemoth. And that the way you get growth at a company like Apple is not so much inventing the iPhone, which is great, and you kind of need to do that once, but it's taking the iPhone and then turning the iPhone into a platform upon which you can just create enormous amounts of profits. It's not just, I'm going to sell a bunch of iPhones and I'm going to be able to raise the price and those iPhones are going to be $1,000 and no one's going to blink an eye, although that is part of it. And Steve Jobs was certainly never never charged $1,000 for an iPhone. You know? But it was it's also, I'm going to create this ecosystem where you're all going to be paying for various apps every day of the week and every time you pay for anything i'm going to take 30 percent, and that becomes like this massive revenue stream and like and you can just take the iphone and turn and, and create so much internal growth from the iphone that you don't need a whole new product yeah it's like all the little innovations add up to something even bigger than the first initial burst of genius like you need both kinds of genius for a long-term successful company you can't just rest you can't just invent the BlackBerry and then s- sail off into the sunset. 
But I still wonder, like, if ever something comes along to replace the iPhone. Well, I mean, if you ask Apple, they'll tell you it's the Vision Pro, which, you know. But it's not. Maybe it's a (laughs) neurally green chip. Yeah, exactly. I hope not. Should we have a numbers round, people? Um, Elizabeth, do you have a number? Yeah, my number is 150, and that's dollars. And for $150, you can go to the Alyeska Resort that's south of Anchorage and walk across a sky bridge that's 2,500 feet above ground. So I, I feel like this is a very China kind of thing. Like th- These kind of sky bridges exist all over China. It's a very Europe kind of thing. It's a very popular tourist thing in Europe. And these things are called Via Ferratas or Iron Paths. And they were, they were sort of developed in World War One when the Austrians were fighting the Italians and they left kind of grips and lines and stuff to get through the Dolomites. And then predictably, wealthier people turned it into recreation later in the same century. And now they're increasingly popular in the US. And as someone who's terrified of heights, I find this fascinating that people would actually pay money to dangle 2,500 feet. Do, do you find it fascinating that people pay money to do things that are scary? I mean, that's that's what scary movies are. That's like that's part of the Yes, I don't know I mean, why anybody no one would skydiving. Pay, no one would pay <laughs> if it wasn't scary. But can you just help me? How tall is twenty five hundred feet? It's a two hundred fifty story building. Woof! And and what do you? What is the bridge going over? What do you? Fall uh, it's going between a, a couple of mountains, so you're you're basically going over the valley. Ooh, and is it real snowy because it's Alaska and stuff yeah. mostly all the time? Is that when people yeah. go over it? I'm, I'm sure it's beautiful, it but also sounds is it narrow? Like I, I would definitely have a panic attack, a foot in, and die. But are there rails on the yeah, side? So it's you not clip, like you're you like clip in, uh, you're wearing a harness and you're clipped to one line, <laughs> uh-huh. and you're basically tight walking across another with lines on both sides that you can kind of hold on to. I'd do that. Because the lines. Yeah. You're safe. They're not going to let you fall off. It doesn't sound like hard. It's not like climb. It's not like free solo, you know, like on the side of a mountain. No. (laughs) And and I think that's the appeal. It's for people who want this kind of adrenaline rush of doing serious climbing, but don't have the training to do it or the skills. And they want, they want, you know, safety net. That's better than a roller coaster. I hate roller coasters. Like it's one of the, you, you see these like, you know, like, those tours where you climb up the Sydney Harbour Bridge the same way. Like these have been around for a while. Emily, what's your number? My number is 24, 24%. That is the percentage of fast food employees in California who are already earning at least $20 an hour. I'm bringing this up because there's a law allegedly going into effect in April where fast food workers are going to have a minimum wage of $20 an hour with an exception, with a one exception. And that is if the establishment makes bread, <laughs> which everyone, I wrote about it and like I put it in my story months ago. My editor was like, what? And I was like, I, I don't know, man, but there's this bread exception. And we were like, that's weird. So Bloomberg has a story out this week um, explaining, possibly speculating really why there's this weird exception. And it turns out there's this longstanding relationship between the governor of California Gavin Newsom, and this billionaire guy named Greg, who owns all these Panera franchises in the state, like a lot of them, like he's like a franchise billionaire, basically. And they're very friendly, people tout their friendship. And as an example of like, if you're a fast food kind of person, um, industry person, you want to make friends with policymakers, because then you get this exception. No one in Newsom's administration 
no one can explain the exception. They're like, it just, it just showed up in the legislation. We don't know why. It, it's a good story. And it's still, it's still a mystery. But the reason I use this number 24% is to show like, maybe it doesn't matter because Panera is going to have to compete to get workers, right? And if all the other companies are paying $20 an hour at a minimum, Panera is probably going to have to shell out that cash too. So at the end of the day, it might not even matter. It just seems like corruption by big bread. Well, that's what I want to see if like Burger King and like McDonald's start offering soon fresh baked bread on premises, you know, but there are, you have to have started baking the bread last year to to get, to be eligible for the exception. Cunning, <laughs> cunning. My number is also food related. My number is one, which is the number of jelly beans the kids got at the <laughs> at Willie's chocolate experience. <laughs> <laughs> Willie's chocolate experience. Willie's chocolate experience. And there wasn't any chocolate. The amount of chocolate at, the, at Willie's chocolate experience was zero, but they did get a number, a quantum of jelly beans, and that quantum was one. You should explain a little more. This was in Scotland, right? It was just in Glasgow, yeah. Yes. And there was an event that advertised as Willie's chocolate experience, and people, I think, paid something like forty dollars, like forty-four pounds, I think, something like that. It was a lot of money for these tickets because there were all of these AI renderings of these incredible wonderlands where you'd skip along, you know, yellow brick roads and be surrounded by color and charm, and then you get there and it's just like the world's most miserable Oompa Loompa. <laughs> <laughs> this is another AI debacle, right? Because it was AI used to generate the images for all the posters and stuff, and people were like, "This looks amazing." And they're thinking of like chocolate rivers are going to be there, right? And it's just like a warehouse with a rainbow stapled to a cardboard. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Brilliant. I think that's it for this week. If you are a Slate Plus member, then you are in for a treat because we're going to talk all about Macy's in the Plus. Otherwise, thank you very much for listening. Thank you to Jared Downing and Shana Roth for producing. And we will be back on Tuesday with an interview I did with Gary Stevenson, who has an amazing book out. He was briefly the highest paid trader at Citibank. He has a book out called The Trading Game. It's a sort of updated version of Liar's Poker. It is a fun read, and that's coming up. And then we'll be back the following Saturday with a regular Slate Honey. <laughs> <laughs>